So when I was growing up, my parents, and if you've been around, you've heard me say this before, both of my parents worked in factories. My dad was a, a truck shop technician in a rubber manufacturing factory. My mom worked in the benefits office as a secretary in the factory, a, a mill, a textile factory. And so we were, we had a comfortable living, two parents working, uh, but we weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination. We were comfortable, but we weren't wealthy. And somehow, and just developing friendships, playing baseball, getting to know people in elementary school, at church, and middle school, and high school, I made friends with people who were rich, who were wealthy, especially by Dyersburg standards. You realize that Dyersburg wealth is different than like Nashville wealth, all right? And so it was the really cool benefits of that. On Sunday afternoons, we always got together and played sports and stuff, and we get to go to people's houses that one of my friends had a full basketball court uh, made in his backyard. We, another one of my friends had a, a, an official wiffle ball field in his backyard, and that was really cool stuff. But one of the things that came along with um, having friends is that, that had some money is they always dressed uh, really nice. And I had this little envious thing that I always wanted. They, they, they always wore the shirts with a guy riding a horse with a polo stick in his hand. You know what I'm talking about, right? Polo shirts. And I did not get those shirts. My mom did not see the reason for spending that sort of money on a shirt with the guy with the horse with a stick in his hand. And so I got the Knights of the Round Table shirts. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? It, instead of the guy holding a polo stick, it's a guy riding a horse carrying a flag. Everything looks the same except for that. But, I mean, in the world of middle school and high school, you know the difference between polo and knights of the round table. And there was a moment when my entire life changed. We were in Memphis shopping one day, and my mom found a store. And in this particular store, they had a section And in this section of the store, they had clothes that had not the guy carrying a flag, but the guy carrying a polo stick. And the prices were reduced. Not like sale, not like special, they were reduced. And there was this little tag on it that said, this item sold as is. You know what that means? That means there is some sort of flaw in this thing. Now, they weren't going to tell you what it was. Maybe there was a rip in one part of the shirt. Or maybe in the the jeans there was a zipper that wouldn't zip. Or maybe there was a a stain on the inside of a sleeve or a button that wouldn't butt. I mean, there was something wrong with the item. And basically what they were saying by putting the as-is tag on there was... You're going to take this home and you're going to find that problem. And when you do, do not come sniveling back to us and saying, I need my money back or this is a problem or you didn't tell me about this. You are purchasing this item as is. Now, maybe you've bought a car that way, you know, no warranty. It is as is. Maybe you've bought some sort of furniture or electronics and it's an out of the box buy and it is as is. But the point is, there's a problem here. We're not going to tell you what it is. But when you discover it, don't get mad that there's a problem because you ought to know that there's a problem because we're selling it to you 
as is. Here's what I've discovered. As you enter into relationships in your life, you are basically walking into the as is section of life. Right? Everybody that you ever have a friendship with, that you enter into a relationship with, ought to have a tag on them that says, these people are as is. Because the truth is, there's some flaw there, and they're not going to tell you what it is on the front end. They're not going to admit to you what it is. But once you get to know them, you're going to discover that there's an issue there. And if you come into the relationship thinking that it's somehow perfect, you're going to try to fix whatever that flaw is and not realize that everybody is as is. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible, sometimes people say the Bible is just a bunch of stories of people, of stained glass people, that no issues. And I just want to say to people, have you read the Bible? The Bible may be the most as is people that you can ever see. I mean, you think about even the great heroes of the Bible, people like Abraham, who played favorites with children and lied that his wife was his sister so he wouldn't get in trouble. And you, you think about David, who had an affair with a woman and then had her husband killed. You think about Jonah who refused to go where God wanted him to go. You think about Lot who in the most wicked city that has ever existed was sitting right there among all the leaders. You think about Noah who after all the stuff that happens with the ark, he gets drunk, passes out. I mean, the Bible is a book full of as is people. Here's what it comes down to. All right. Here's the the basic premise. The, the, The Bible's trying to teach us a very deep theological truth. And it is simply this. Everybody is weird. Amen? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to whoever is beside you. And I want you to say to them, you are weird. That may be the most enthusiastic talk. Now I want you to turn to them and say, and so am I. And it's just true. I can verify for many of you that is absolutely true. And here's the thing. The easy thing in all of that would just be to withdraw. But there's this innate desire within us to be connected to other people. And part of the problem is that as is stuff, that stuff that we don't know about, that stuff. I mean, you know, this happens in marriages. You get married and then two weeks into the marriage, you're like, golly, what was I thinking? What, what, I didn't. I, you weren't like that. It's my as-is stuff. Some of you are going to go home today and say, that, that's your argument. That's just my as-is stuff. I'm sorry. All right. The difficult dilemma becomes, how do you connect with people without getting hurt? Because we want to have these connections. We live in what I believe is the most disconnected society that has existed in any time we have recorded. People are more connected today to the rest of the world than they've ever been, and they're less connected to the people right around them. And we try to figure out how do we get close without getting hurt by the as-is stuff. Made me think of a special animal this week. I'm going to put this picture up on the screen. Somebody tell me, what's this animal here? A porcupine. Isn't that a lovely creature? Man. Porcupines, by the way, I know some of you are curious about this. This is the North American porcupine. And the average North American porcupine has 30,000 quills on its back. 
And when a, a predator or someone comes that they get irritable about, they stick them with a quill, and then the quill goes into the heat of your body, the heat of the body of whoever it goes into, <laughs> makes it expand inside. Doesn't that sound exciting? It's like, it's like going to the doctor and getting a shot with a needle, and once the needle goes in, it starts expanding. Well, that's fun right there. And here's the problem porcupines have. They can't turn these off. Right? And they don't even like, you know, most people, most animals, most people, most animal in the animal kingdom go like in groups. Like you have herds, you have, you know, you, you, they go together. But porcupines don't. They don't like each other. And when confronted with another porcupine, they either withdraw or they attack. Here's the problem. In order for there to be more porcupines, that has to change at some point. Right? I don't have to spell it out, right? Okay. And so the question begins, how do they, because the females especially don't want to be around any males. I'm really glad I didn't get an amen there. All right. Except for one time a year. Here's kind of an interesting thing, because their whole thing is how do we, because if you, if you're two porcupines and you get into a fight, there are 60,000 quills involved. I mean, a lover's quarrel is not fun. One week a year, the female is open and the mate will come along and they will spend a week together and there are... They have shown this to be true. They even as the week is happening, as they're opening themselves up to each other, they will stand up on their legs and put their hands up and press their palms together and dance. Yeah, I know. I mean, think about this picture. These air and stuff. We are like, oh, if you saw that, you're like, what is that? Is please get away from that. But the point is, even the porcupine has to come to a place. Or it allows relationships because that's how we're created. That's how they're created and that's how we are too. Over this last week and the weeks ahead, we're talking about what does it mean? We, we talk about our, our, our statement of what we are about here at First Baptist. And it's that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so for the month of January, we're talking about, okay, what does that look like? What is this phrase, passionately devoted? What does that mean? Last week we had this whole discussion about passionately devoted means that we're passionately devoted to worshiping God, to giving Him the praise and honor and glory that is due His name, that we are to give Him the proper respect for the One who created all, it is in all, it is through all, and is above all, and that we are to give our lives, that, that we are wasting our lives if we are not passionately giving worship to God, both privately and in this place together. And this week we're going to talk about the second thing that it's about, and that is that being passionately devoted means that we are a passionately devoted member. And here, here's what I mean by that. Because some of you hear that and immediately think, oh, what are we signing up for? I mean that Scripture teaches, and we're going to look at this passage, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are part of the body of Christ. And if that is true, then you are part of the global body. But also, I believe it means that there is a local place that you are to plug into and be a part of. Now, 
The problem we have with this word member when it comes to being a part of a church is that many of us have a false understanding of what a church is. I was reading a pastor this week and he came up with some pictures that he said, some places that people think of church is like. And, and for instance, he, he says that a lot of people think a church is like a gas station. It's the place you go to on Sunday morning and you get filled up for the week and you hear a good sermon and a good Sunday school lesson and you slap a few backs and say, good to see you, hope you're doing well, how you doing, I'm fine. And then you go on through the rest of the week and you just hope you can make it back to the end of the week, the next Sunday, and come back and get filled up again. Some people see it not as a gas station, they see it as a movie theater. It's a place we come and we're entertained. We sit in our seats and... Watch the show and enjoy it. Maybe there's not popcorn, but there's entertainment. We leave, and if it's been good, we're happy and excited. If it was a disappointment, we may give it two thumbs down and think, I don't know that I'm going to go back for that again. Some people see it as a pharmacy. I've got a problem. I've got an ailment. I've got an illness. I've got a sickness. And I need someone to fix it. I need some way to medicate it. And you come to church, and at church you hope that it's a place where you can find the right thing for whatever you need. Some people see it like a big retail store. You go in and you have needs and you're going in to find out if you can get those needs met and you really don't want to interact with a lot of people and you're even glad they've got the self-checkout now where you don't have to interact too much with a real live person. And so you go in and you get your needs met and you, you, you go to the programs and you get all the programs done and people give you what you need and you take care of it and it's not too expensive and you spend all that time and you get out of there as soon as you can. And some people see it like the club. That place that you go and you pay some dues and as a result of paying dues, you get the benefits of that. When I was growing up in Dyersburg, we had a country club in Dyersburg, the Dyersburg Country Club. And again, a country club in Dyersburg is completely different than most country clubs around here. All right? they, didn't even, they didn't even have a golf course or anything. It was just a building. All right? Now, but we, as I've already mentioned, weren't, we weren't wealthy enough to be a part of the Dyersburg Country Club. So we were part of a club that was next door to the country club that was for all the folks that couldn't afford the country club. And all I remember about that is my parents paid dues every month, and I'm sure they had activities that I didn't know about. But what I knew is we got to go to the pool in the summer. Now, I remember going to the pool and having a great time. They had a really nice pool out there. And we would go up there, and they had a concession stand that I still think had the best pizza that has ever been invented. Now, I am sure that if I tasted it today, it would be completely nasty. But back then, I thought it was great. You know why? Because I could walk up there, and I could say, put it on our account. When you're 13 years old, there is nothing better in the world than not having to pay for something. Put that on our account. I, I, I thought it just went in the air somewhere. Our account was somewhere out there. Mom and dad are like, how many pizzas is this boy eating at the pool? But the idea behind a country club is you pay your dues and they give you stuff. They provide you stuff. They give you an environment. And if you look through scripture, the Bible never describes it as any of those five things. The Bible never describes the church or what we're a part of as any of those five things. It really gives two illustrations, and we're going to talk about one today primarily. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
And here's what I want to tell you before we even get to reading. The biggest difference between those five pictures that I gave you and the true picture of the church in 1 Corinthians 12 is this. Those five pictures generally are asking the question, what can I get from this church? What can I receive from this church? The description we're about to see is not what can I receive from this church, it's what can I give? How can I contribute? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. We're going to leave it there for just a second. For just as the body is one, is your body more than one? You're like, I don't understand the question. No. If your body's more than one, we need to have some discussions, all right? How many of you are there? One, all right? So it's just as the body is one, but it has many parts. So we who are many are one. Now, let me ask you just some questions. We're going to do some deep theological study here, okay? Is it important that your body work together in order to accomplish what you need to accomplish? Okay? What are some everyday activities that do not work if some part of your body decides to go AWOL? Walk. You ever, you ever gotten out of bed and you didn't know it, but like your foot's asleep? You ever had that? Or you've been sitting down for a while and you can't hardly move, right? Right? What else? What, what do you, what do you need to do? You know, I was watching, I was watching, um, Eli play basketball. He's in a basketball league, the North Nashville Hoops that we're a part of. And I was watching yesterday and I was thinking about this sermon. And I was just thinking about even for, and listen, the, well, I was watching, um, fifth and sixth graders, not the most, um, coordinated bunch of, just their fifth and sixth graders. They're not really got all their coordination yet. But even to watch what it takes to dribble and to go and to shoot and to re- all that you have to use, your body has to work together, right? Now, Paul's going to keep making that point when he goes on to the next verse. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And the reason this is important is he's writing to a church in Corinth that was an absolute mess. They came from all over the place. There were Jews, there were Greeks, there were people that were from the Roman Empire, there were people that had made their living on making fun of Jews, on taking advantage of Jews. There were Jews who were slaves, there were Jews that were free, and they had all come together, and when they came together, the church itself was an absolute mess. They argued about who their favorite preacher was. One guy said, I loved Apollos, another said, well, I liked Paul, and then there were the super spiritual people in there, you know these kind of people, and they said, listen, I don't follow any of those, I believe in like Jesus. You had people that thought they were more spiritual than other people because they could do certain things that others couldn't do. They could speak in tongues or they could heal. And so they said, we're more important than you because of what we can do. We have more of the Spirit. We have more of Jesus. We have more of God in us than you have in you. They had a guy that was living with his stepmom. And when I say living with his stepmom, in a relationship with his stepmom, living together, and also wanted to be leader in the church, and the church wouldn't say anything about it. They had this deal where they celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and what they would do is they would come together and have a meal, usually at the end of the day. And then at the, as they were having their meal at the end of the day, everybody would gather around and they would do the Lord's Supper together. And what you have to realize is these people weren't Baptist yet. And so they didn't use grape juice. They used real stuff. 
And what would happen is the rich people that didn't have to work at all that day would all come and they would get there early and they would have a party and they would have a good time. They would celebrate and they would drink all the wine that they could have as part of the Lord's Supper instead of just, you know, like getting a little bitty cup like we get. They would like get fill their cup all the way up. We're celebrating the blood of Christ. Woo, this is great. And then the poor people would come who had to work all day. When they got there, they would get sit down and they would say, we're ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the drunk, fat, rich people would say, there's nothing left. They had women in their day who in their day and time, and you remember, this is a different day and time. Women in their day and time weren't allowed to talk at all in a public place. And they had women who were running down the aisles in the midst of their worship service, contradicting the people that were speaking, the apostles, the leaders, the disciples, the the pastors of the church, contradicting them face to face, even in their day doing disgraceful things in the midst of the worship service. They had five or six people trying to preach at the same time. It was a mess. And Paul says, listen, in order to understand what you're doing here, in order to fulfill the purpose God has placed you on this planet for, you've got to realize that it was one spirit. You didn't have three spirits. You didn't have a good spirit and a better spirit and the best spirit. It was the spirit who baptized you into one body and you're made of one. You're together. You are the same. He goes on to say this. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He makes these ridiculous statements. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. He goes on to say this. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We're going to leave that verse up for a minute because I think it teaches us a couple of things that I think is very important to understand. The first thing is this, is that God, it tells us here, is the one that arranges us in the body. And here's what I want to say to you. There's some of you that have been visiting for a while. Um, you're trying to make up your mind about whether or not you're going to join the church, be a member of the church. Um, there's some of you that have been visiting for a while, and that's not even a concern on your heart. Uh, there's some of you that have been a member of this church for a long, long time, and you're wondering why you're still here. Here's what I would say to you. If God has arranged you to be part of this body then it is your responsibility to be a part of this body. The question you have to really ask yourself is not, what does this church give for me? What does this do for me? Am I being fed? Am I getting what I need? The question you need to ask is, is this where God has placed us? God is the one that arranges, and he arranges because he puts together the body in such a way that they all work together. And so if you're here, if you say... I've been a member of the church for 50 years. I've been a member of the church for 20 years. I'm thinking about becoming a member of the church. If God has arranged you here, you are here for a purpose. There is a reason you are here. And you can't look at other people and say, well, I can never do what they do. It's as ridiculous as an eye saying I can never be an ear. In fact, what goes understood here is that if you're not doing your part, you are damaging the entire body by your lack of obedience. 
Now, we understand this in our bodies. When something malfunctions, doesn't go right, it affects us all. I mean, um, last night, just for instance, last night was, uh, many of you know I'm insulin-dependent diabetic. Some of you don't know. Um, But that means literally that I have um, the cells that I'm supposed to have in my body, microscopic cells I'm supposed to have in my body aren't there. And as a result, it throws everything in my body out of whack. And I usually control it pretty well, but last night was one of those nights where my blood sugar went really high. I had a problem with my insulin set, and then it went really low this morning, and it just went, it was a roller coaster event. And the whole time, it's affecting everything. When it's high, I get headaches, and I get thirsty, and I can't sleep well. When it's low, I get jittery, and I can't think straight. I mean, it affects every part of who I am. And it's not just big stuff like that. I teaching a Sunday school class on Sunday mornings. I told them this story last week, but a couple of weeks ago, um, many of you know I had the flu on Christmas night. I got it. Friday, uh, I uh, went got diagnosed, started the medicine. Saturday felt a little better. Sunday felt a little better. On Monday, Susan said, that's enough of this. We're moving the house around, all right? And so we're moving stuff in the house. We, we literally transferred the girls' bedrooms to one room, moved Luke from one room to another, dismantled about four or five beds, put them all back together, because that's what you do on day four of the flu, right? And part of that was I picked up something. I, don't, I think it was I think it was the crib mattress. Just you know, we had a little moment because we took down the crib that had been up in our house for twelve years. And uh, we fought back tears and then rejoiced. All right. And so I'm carrying the crib mattress and I'm going down our steps. And I can't, when you're carrying a mattress, first of all, I probably should have got help carrying the mattress, but I'm a guy, I'm going to carry the mattress, all right? So I'm carrying the mattress, and I can't see. And as I'm stepping onto the bottom step, someone named Maddie has left a Lego at the bottom of the steps. As I've said before, they really, when you're in, like, in the hospital and they say, what's your pain scale right now? On a scale from one, the top ought to be on a scale of one to I just stepped on a Lego, all right? I mean, the pain, how many of you ever stepped on a Lego? It is shooting pain, all right? I, by the way, I asked that question in the first service, and I had like half of them go, I don't know what that feels like. I'm like, I'm going to bring a Lego down. We're going to put it down, all right? And so I step on the Lego, but this isn't one of these little bitty Legos. This is the Duplo size Lego. And as I step on it, carrying the mattress... My first reaction is, don't drop the mattress and get off the Lego. So I jump to the other foot, and I land on my little toe. That an hour later was purple, which I don't think is the color it's supposed to be. And I think to myself, I just broke my little toe. I'm not going to act like it. I'm going to be, you know, but man, it hurt. Anybody ever stumped your toe? Anybody ever broke a toe? Man, that hurts. All right? I mean, people make fun of, like, athletes. You got turf toe. You can't go. Like, you ever had turf toe? It hurts, all right? And so it just affected every step I took. This morning, I get up. I put on my dress shoes. I think everything's good. I slide my foot in the dress shoe. It still hurts. Because one little piece of my body. I think it's like the smallest bone or one of the smallest bones in your entire body. It affects the whole thing. And here's what I want you to understand today. Listen, I know 
that becoming a member or joining or being a part. I, some people st- steer away from the term member. I only use the term member because Paul used the term member, and I'm okay with that. Joining, being a part, coming in fellowship with, joining the family, however you want to phrase it. Some people are like, I, I don't know what I want. To, I don't want to commit to that. And here's the truth: I can't promise you that. There won't be difficulty because everybody that's a part of this church, we are as is. Now, if you're looking for the place that doesn't have any as is people, you find it and let us know. All right. But here's what I'm asking today. If you're going to be fully committed, not wasting your life, doing what God's called you to do. Part of that involves plugging yourself into a local body of believers and giving everything you can to that. Last week we used this illustration of the webs. And that we build all this stuff into our life. And there are all kinds of places you're probably members of. There are probably all kinds of organizations you are a part of. And what I want you to understand is those aren't necessarily bad things. But when we begin to let that overlap and get into fear and take place of, what happens is we lose sight on the thing that God has called us to be a member of. His body. A local place where His people are working for His glory and His purpose. Two things that I think being a passionately devoted member means. First of all, means that you are a part of the whole. One of the things that's unique about what we're doing here at First Baptist is we, we are not trying to target specific demographics. We're not going after the 20-something millennial generation. We're not going after the Gen Xers. We're not going after the boomers and their kids. We are, and I believe this is biblical, attempting to become a multi-generational church. Now, the truth is we already are a multi-generational church because we have people in our church. We had a guy last week that turned 97. We got people that are be having kids so we got babies. we got babies downstairs. Our baby department is bigger than it's been in years. Our babies are twos and threes. And so that's an exciting thing for us to see. But what it means is, is when you invest your life in First Baptist Goodlettsville, you invest your life as part of the whole. That you're here. That you're part of that. In fact, there are four things that I think that being part of the whole means. And the first one is simply that you are here. Be here. It's hard to be a part when you're not here. I read a statistic last week that said that the average churchgoer um, 30 years ago, the, what would be considered an average church member, attended church three times a week. And what today is considered an average church member attends church three times a month. In fact, recent research by Tom Rayner, who is the president of Lifeway and does all this research about churches, specifically Southern Baptist churches, has found that the average church member today would have been considered a part-time church member 15 years ago. And that's what it means. Here's what I mean by be here. I mean, make it a priority. Listen, I know you got all kinds of stuff in your life. Y'all know that I am not one to get up here and get on you for not. I have missed you. You haven't been here three weeks in a row. Where have you been? What's going on? I, I do miss. We do miss you. We notice that you're not here. You know, I'm not one of those legalistic guys that says if you're not checking off the box that you come to church, you're not going to heaven. Right. But here's my the desire of my heart. And not for me and not for our church, but for you is that this being here Sunday morning when we have special activities is making it a priority in your life. 
scheduling around it, planning around it, making it a priority over things that are good. One of the things that Susan and I are committed to with our kids is that we want them to know that a priority in their life is over schoolwork, over sports involvement, over other stuff is being a part of the family of God. Now, you say, well, you're the pastor. You got to do that. We don't. We have the same things that you have. I mean, homework and sports leagues that want to practice on Wednesdays and it's there. Here's what I know about my kids. My goal is 25 years from now, I, I don't think, and I could be wrong, I don't think any of my kids will still be playing sports. Not on a competitive level unless it's, I mean, church intramural softball gets pretty competitive sometimes. They're not going to be making a living playing sports. But I do hope that they're making a part of their life being an active part of the family of God where God has called them to be. And I want them to know that it's a priority in our lives so that they, we can't guarantee anything, but that they understand that it's important to us. I've said this before, but one of the things that I tell parents is, If your faith, if your desire, if your priorities for the kingdom are not real to you, it won't matter to your kids. Secondly, not just be here, but know your place. That's the whole point of the body. Some of you say, well, I don't want to be an ear. Well, if you're an ear, you're an ear. Do what you're supposed to do. Do your part. Know your place. Do your part. We, we don't do spiritual gift inventory, personality test here. But I believe that God has placed each and every one of you here for a reason. And you have gifts and talents. And that you are to give and to uh, be a part of using that for the glory of God. Do your part. Don't do more than your part. Don't do less than your part. Do your part. If you do less than your part, that means somebody else is going to have to do more for their part. If you do more for their part, you're excusing somebody else for doing less for their part. Just do your part and work for unity. Scripture, when Paul talks to the church, almost every time he talks to them, he says, work at unity. Work, allow yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but work for unity. What that means is that we are actively attempting to work together for the glory of God. We don't have to figure out a purpose to be unified about. Our purpose is Jesus Christ and his name proclaimed and people coming to understand who he is. That is our purpose. We don't have to figure it out. We have to work at making sure that stays our focus. Two things that can derail that really quickly. One is just outright selfishness. Your desires, your wants, your needs taking priority over the priorities of God's kingdom. Well, I can never attend a church that. Well, if they don't start, well, I can tell you one thing they need to do. And second is talking about things and people without addressing it to people that can do something about it or addressing it to the people you're talking about. Now, in the real world, we call that what? Gossip. Well, I I got a real concern on my heart. You don't really have a concern on your heart. You just got some news you need to share. I got a prayer request. You're not going to believe what happened. Be here. Know your place. Do your part. Work for unity. First thing is to be part of the whole. The second thing is 
I believe, to be accountable to a few. You've got to find your small group of friends. We do that through Sunday school here. We do that through in our youth group, through uh, small groups on Wednesday nights and Sunday school on Sunday mornings. Find a place and be a part. Find a Sunday school class. And that doesn't mean just go to a place and sit and enjoy and be there for an hour. That means invest your life in. That means be around people. There is no way, the 200 people we have in this room right now, there is no way that we can do life together as 200 people. But you can with 10 to 15 others. Invest in them. Weep with them, congratulate them, rejoice with them, and be accountable about your own spiritual growth with them. You're going to have all kinds of opportunities. In fact, my guess is that our generation has more opportunities than any generation that has ever existed to be part of other stuff. The question that you have to ask is, what is it in my life that I have to begin to cut away? What are the responsibilities What are the priorities that I have that are preventing me from doing the thing that God has called me to do? And to be a member of the one thing that God has set as a priority in your life. It's not easy. There are times when the as-is nature of the people in this place are going to show itself on full display. But that doesn't mean it's not worth it. Everyone in this room has a desire and a need And to be a part of a group of people actively pursuing what God has called us to do. My question to you simply is, are you ready to be a passionately devoted member? Someone who is actively involved in doing what God has called you to do in this place. Let's pray together.